Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unhedged, and I'm the show's host, Frank Troyes. And as folks who know me might say, I have a face for radio, hence why we've been so successful with the podcast, despite over 20 years of doing network TV work for the business networks, both in the United States and here in Asia. Question may come up, why a podcast versus TV? You know, to be perfectly candid, we would engage in the most incredible discussions off camera and the most contentious discussions between panelists, guest hosts, off air than we would when the light was on and we were recording the show. That for me was the bellwether to say that our viewers and our listeners needed to hear that debate. They needed to hear those honest opinions, unfiltered, uncentered, with guests having at it in a good constructive debate. On Unhedged, we find ourselves with an incredibly diverse group of guests. Literally, they range from winemakers to theologians to environmentalists to politicians. Yet at the same time, we find everyone is actually talking about the same things. There tend to be the same undercurrent themes in each one of these discussions. So while on the surface, it may seem that we're talking about markets, we really aren't. We're actually talking about everything that you and I and our families and our kids and our grandkids are thinking about and going through each and every day. That said, based on the subject matter, at a minimum, the show will be on once a week, but in many cases, we're on two to three times a week. So be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. In addition, we have an incredibly active community with our partners at Slack with Unhedged, which is available 24-7. So if there's anything that we say on the show that for whatever reason you'd like to continue the discussion yourself, you can actually do that with the guest hosts and participants that we have on the show. So feel free to do that, and that's available 24-7, and you can find that on our website. So again, on behalf of everyone here putting together the show, we thank you for tuning in. And as always, if there's something that we say that doesn't necessarily agree with you, that's what we're here for. It's meant to be unhedged. And with that, welcome to this week's show. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Unhedged. My name is Frank Troyes, and thank you again for listening to us this week. And I'm very, very happy to have Ian Chapman Banks with us this week. Ian, thank you for joining us. Ah, very welcome, Frank, and thank you for inviting me. No worries. And and to kind of cut right to the chase, one of the reasons why we were really excited to have you on the show this week is that you have done some incredible work on the AI side. And and we had a conversation with with uh, Steve Monaghan a few weeks ago talking about some of the insurance applications. And, and the question I have for you, uh, given just the, the sheer breadth of information that, that you're sitting on, is at what point do we start to have the debate about when does this become a private sector focus versus a public sector focus? And, and given just, and I want to be sensitive to, given the enormity of some of the projects that you're focused on, you've had the chance to see both sides. But wh- where should this technology be sitting? 
it's a great question. Look, I think if you think about what the American government is doing in what's called the, the, the OSINT space, the open source intelligence space in terms of acquiring as much uh, open source anonymous data as possible, I think quite clearly that there's benefits both to, to governments in terms of US government in using uh, open source data to be able to start, start doing predictive analysis. And then it kind of kills a lot of the firewalls and security protocols that you need. And then the US government actually can then share that information with you know, the 27 members of NATO and or you know, kind of the five eyes without having to reach any security protocols. On the, on the commercial side, I think what's going to happen is that taking massive amounts of unstructured anonymous data, pulling them down by you know, hundreds of APIs and then using an intelligent machine to make sense of them and build patterns, I think that is going to be the future. Now, when you talk about when does it become joined, one of the initiatives that we're thinking about is that in the medical space, we are now acquiring and reading every blog, every article, every search that every doctor has done around the world. And we're building a behavioral database which actually encompasses almost all the therapeutic areas that you go to a doctor for. And one of our kind of grand ambitions and what we'd really like to achieve, you know, kind of do, do you know, give something back is that what we want to do is we want to build a, a, an AI behavioral database for medical sciences whereby in countries such as Indonesia, China, India, where they cannot employ enough doctors to serve the population, the AI would be able to predict in the field kind of disease states if the nurse or let's call it junior doctor or or kind of you know the local person who has the most medical knowledge starts inputting patient symptoms, the AI would come back with the correct answer, probably 95% certainty. I think it'll take us about 12 months to get there on that particular side of the business and actually be able to predict what disease states people have when they present themselves. But I think that is when we really start to do some very interesting work in commercial and public and providing, you know, a very notable public service. Where, where have you seen the, the, the receptivity to this? Again, and I don't mean to, to, to push on this in terms of the public and private sector, but it, it, it's always a fascinating conundrum on the insurance side, because when, when you look at, if you look at the technology that you could technically deploy early and the amount of preventative uh, impact that that would have to the, the end user, Versus the typical medical model now, which, which is, um, you know, a person's in, in dire health, the majority of the symptoms could have been prevented in, in terms of the outcome. And I, and I look at, to your point on Indonesia, uh, where you have folks that are in, you know, I forget last count, there's over 10,000 islands. So it's a perfect use case mm. for remote locations. At the same time, the infrastructure now is coming online. I mean, is, is this something where the private sector is, is the best entity to deploy that? Or, or is this something where the Indonesian government should say, Ian, you know what, we're, we're going to do this because this is for the greater good? I think it'll be a collaboration. I think it'll be a collaboration between, you know, let's, let's say, just throw some names out, you know, the GSKs, the J&Js, the Roches, the Pfizer's of the world that actually start to deploy it to then kind of backed up and authorized by the government. Uh, I, I think it could be a really interesting collaboration. For example, you know, there's a couple of very well-known companies, Japanese uh, pharma companies, that actually give medication away for free in the Philippines for particular tumor applications. So if you have a particular rare tumor in the Philippines, there's only one or two companies that can actually uh, have the drugs that will actually cure that tumor. And, the, the, you know, the Japanese, Japanese pharma company gives it away for free. So I actually do believe the initiatives are, are coming online and fast. Now, to build on what you said about taking open source data, we did work with the Singapore uh, uh, Breast Cancer Association where they asked us 
in Singapore, women that have breast cancer, uh, what are the things that we should be thinking about? What other services should we be giving them? And what our data told us by just basically pulling all this instruction on of his data was that women are in various stages of breast cancer with a stage one to stage four, the big issue is sleep. And they mm. don't talk to the doctor about it because they think they should be focusing on, on the breast cancer. But if they were to ask the questions around how you're sleeping, then, you know, in the very early part of diagnosis, it's worry about having breast cancer, uh, therefore you can't sleep. At the end of stage three and stage four, it's worried that, oh my God, I'm going to pass away. And, you know, financially, I'm going to be, uh, my family's going to be left in a lot of trouble. So two, two really big things uh, that the Singapore Breast Cancer Association can help on guidance about the sleep. And secondly, as, as you get further into the, the, the treatments, whether you're in remission or whether you're in stage three or stage four, you know, little things become important to you, like parking. Parking, or you hate looking for parking because you start to count your life in hours as opposed to years. So those little things irritate you. So we said at the Breast Cancer Association or the Breast Cancer Hospitals, you should give free parking for the patients who are coming in and allow them to park quickly and get into the hospital because it causes them anxiety. And of course, for the family, the big challenge about the family that's left behind is is financially what they're going to do. You know, life uh, life insurance, critical illness. So all of these things indicate in, in data that. You know, just by a very simple kind of using AI to understand breast cancer, we're able to diagnose very quickly that sleep and uh, financial matters were very important to the to the sufferer and the family. And Ian, I'm going to take it take it back a step because I I did follow your points, but I forgive me for maybe asking you to explain something for the benefit of some of our listeners. So when when I'll use the example. There's a great movie on Netflix, AlphaGo, about Google's project to actually play the game of Go and, and distinguishing the ability for machines in the old days, the way that they used to win at chess, which was just grinding through a series of calculations, just an enormous number of calculations versus yeah. AlphaGo, which was actually thinking and, and, and playing. How, how here, to your point, and I think the example of the parking spot's really, really interesting, maybe for the benefit of our, our listeners, if you can explain, you know, what, what, what do we mean by structured data versus unstructured yeah. data? And then what do we really mean by AI versus just pure, hardcore number crunching? Okay, that's, that's a brilliant question. So <clears throat> AI is a very generic term. Uh, and if you think about AlphaGo and you think about IBM, the chess computing for AlphaGo and for when the IBM computer built the chess game, there are actually, the variables are known by the computer. Just in AlphaGo, they're, they're in the maybe hundreds of millions of variables, but there's nothing unknown about this. So if you have a very sophisticated, this called machine, and you program that machine to actually start learning all those outcomes because the outcomes are known, then I would say that is a, a very sophisticated form of, let's say, machine learning or, or deep learning. Now, in the space, so that's a subsection of, of artificial intelligence where you have machine learning or, or deep learning where you actually program the known outcomes into the, into the engine, and the engine will go and find those, and then it will learn the, the best next move as it goes through AlphaGo. Based on all the permutations, it's already run. So it actually knows what's going to happen now. Where we focus on is in the, uh, as Donald Rumsfeld said, is the unknown unknowns. In other words, you can't program a computer or an AI engine to find that women that have breast cancer stage three and stage four get very irritated trying to park the car, right? Or, you know, we can talk about other examples. 
That is more what we call cognitive reasoning. Now, I'm not saying the machine learns because the machine clearly is not intelligent like a brain, but what happens is it takes all the different variables and it's able to probabilistically determine that this is the outcome, but it doesn't know or you have, we haven't programmed the outcome into the machine. So there's really, if you think about it, three really different types of, of AI. There's deep learning, there's machine learning, and there's what we call cognitive learning. And the cognitive learning is all around finding the patterns in the data. And those patterns overlap. There's a very strong overlap between stage four cancer and irritation at parking spaces and looking for parking spaces. Now, we didn't program the machine to do that. It's just the pattern was found by the engine. So as I said, the engine is not learning. It's not cognitively understanding. It's just using uh, very granular pattern recognition to understand outcomes that we can't possibly compute ourselves. Interesting. And, and, and obviously, the, the folks tend to gravitate at times to the, the medical profession and, and the inherent costs and benefits associated with that. But where, where in this, if, if we, again, if we look at that, where in, who, re, who assumes responsibility for the, the outcome? So I, I would look at this, let's take the example a step further, and pardon me for getting you into the ethics of, of uh, what you do, but it sounds like you're in a position where you can discern from these different patterns a course of behavior that, that if somebody was to correct the course that they're on, that they would be conceivably towards a better outcome. But human beings, what human beings are, what if they don't? And, and who at the end of the day should assume responsibility for that poor decision in this? And, and should there be a cost associated with poor decisions? Well, it's a kind of a incredibly interesting question. And we've, we've had this happen to us numerous times where the client who is paying us does not like the outcome. So, for example, uh, I'll give you an example in the, in the fraud detection space or the AML space. Uh, which happened you know, a couple of years ago in Singapore. We were working for a very large bank and we were deployed behind the firewall and we went back in data going back five or six years and we were actually able to uncover uh, an incredible amount of fraud that had been taking place and they'd missed it. So all of a sudden we got, you know, a lot of people start to feel very, very nervous and uh, not wanting to take responsibility and kind of, you know, Kind of trying to, to move the blame around. So in that case, uh, you know, we found something that clearly no one expected us to find, uh, and they were, you know, obviously extremely unhappy with the outcome. So you know, eventually they actually paid up our contract and just asked, asked us to leave. Uh, what were the outcomes? Were well, of course, they've got to go through the regulation, the regulatory authorities, and, and, and notify them. But on many occasions where we've actually found particular insights. Uh, that really don't correspond to what the client wanted. I mean, a very famous insurance company uh, wanted us to fit our behaviors and our insights into the particular segmentation model uh, and because that had been done by an advertising agency based on a focus group of maybe 150 people. And we took a, you know, we took a sample of a country, which was basically the census to say 5 million, and particular insights did not fit into the segmentation model. So... Clearly, they were very upset about that, and we said, "Well, we just can't do that. It doesn't. It just doesn't work. If you guys want to have your segmentation model and just ignore our data, we're completely okay with that." And you know, let's kind of shake shake hands and kind of part ways as friends. So, I think we we are just a think of us as just a tool, right? We're, we're, it's a group of engineers, seventy engineers, and an AI engine that goes into clients, where the client could be a government, the client could be a 
breast cancer association with a client could be an insurance company or a, or a bank. Uh, at the end of the day, they have to take responsibility and, rec- you know, they've got to take responsibility for this. It's not up to us to say this is good or bad. The data tells us something. Here's what we think it is. You guys take it and run with it and you, you guys decide what you want. It's your responsibility to act on it. In this case, it's not our responsibility because we're being contracted by the client to actually find out information. They may not like it. In many cases, they don't. Some cases, some, sometimes they do. But the data is the data. Well, with that, Ian, what I'd like to do, if you can indulge us for uh, another segment, yeah. uh, would you mind if we kind of drill down a little bit into sure. to, uh, uh, the passive or active components of that data? Would that be okay? Absolutely. Fantastic. So uh, for folks listening in again, uh, stay tuned and uh, we'll take a quick commercial back break and be right back with Ian Chapman Banks. Ian, stay tuned. We'll be right back. <laughs> 